This is from the transmission of the lamp, case one. Shakyamuni left his palace one night when he was 19 years old and shaved off his hair. After that, he spent six years absorbed in various ascetic practices. Subsequently, he sat on an indestructible seat, so immovable that there were cobwebs in his eyebrows, a bird's nest on his head, and reeds growing up through his sitting mat. Thus, he sat for six years. In the 19th year, on the morning of December 8th, sorry, on the 30th year, on the morning of December 8th, he was suddenly enlightened when the morning star appeared. Then he spoke the foregoing words, his first line roar. After that, he spent 49 years helping others by teaching, never staying in seclusion. With just one robe and one bowl, he lacked nothing. He taught at over 360 assemblies and finally entrusted the treasury of Eye of the Truth to Kashyapa, and its transmission has continued to the present day. The behavior of Shakyamuni Buddha is a model for the disciples he left behind. Even though he may have had the 32 marks of greatness and the 80 kinds of refinements, he kept the form of an old mendicant, no different from anyone else. Good morning, everybody. It's good to, it's great to see you. It's great to get together on a regular basis this way on Sundays when we're unable to get together physically in the same room. Wonderful way to stay connected, but also to keep the Dharma alive, to study, to maintain, to go deeply into it, and to ask, how do we maintain it at these times? What does it mean for us now? So the Buddha's birthday is usually celebrated on April 8th. And although in some Buddhist traditions, it's on different dates later on, later in April or in May. And since the 8th was only a few days ago, I thought it would be good for us to raise the, this special occasion by devoting this Sunday station and discussion to the Buddha, and more specifically or importantly, to what he pointed at. How do we embody what he pointed at? The traditional celebration of the Buddha's birth involves a ceremony where a statue of a Buddha is immersed in a basin of sweet tea and floating flowers. During the ceremony, each practitioner walks over to the basin and pours some of the sweet tea on the statue of the baby Buddha. And there are some other aspects, such as incense lighting and prostrations, which are often followed by a Sangha gathering for a feast. And our current situation of social distancing does not allow for this kind of celebration, but we shouldn't allow this to hinder us in any way or to change what was put out or what the Buddha taught and what we have to embody in our lives. And besides, if we really want to celebrate the Buddha's birth, we need to turn to the Buddha Dharma, study it and embody it. In other words, each of us has to give birth to universal wisdom of Buddhahood. And I doubt that Chakyamuni Buddha would be, be interested in any other kind of celebration. As the inner chants during the morning service, may we express our gratitude by accomplishing the way together. In terms of Buddhist tradition, there are three important occasions in the life of the Buddha. His birth, his realization, and his death. And these three occasions are pointing to one fundamental teaching. It is said that right after the Buddha was born, he stood up, took seven steps, and with the index finger pointing, of the right hand pointing to the sky, 
and the index finger of the left hand pointing to the earth. He said, I alone am the world honored one. After his enlightenment, he said, wonder of wonders, I, all beings, the great earth, are the wisdom and virtue of the awakened one to thusness. And then after his death, his cousin Ananda heard the Buddha's voice saying, from beginningless time I have appeared as thus to save all beings. And if we take these three statements and tie them together, it would say something like, in this wondrous beginningless reality, I alone have appeared this way for the sole purpose of saving all beings. I alone, as in all one, as in a living embodiment of Indra's net, as we spoke about last week, last Sunday. And without having some understanding of the Buddha Dharma, such statements can be seen as arrogant or to be promoting subserviency. I alone am the world honored one. Do we know who that is? Keizan Zenchi commented on this saying, this I is not Shakyamuni Buddha. Even Shakyamuni Buddha comes from this I. And he does not only give birth to Shakyamuni Buddha. All beings on earth also come from this eye. Just as when you lift up a net, all the holes are raised, and it, as is Indra's net. In the same way, when Shakyamuni was enlightened, so too were all beings on earth enlightened. It's interesting that some, there are some scholars that disagree with these exact words. Whether the Buddha said these words, whether he said anything at all. We may not be able to confirm that or deny that or refute this statement. But the important question is, is it important whether or not the Buddha said these words? And it has to do with how do we understand these words. If this I is not the Buddha, then even if the Buddha does not open up his mouth and say anything, these words echo through all of us. So whether something happened or did not happen is insignificant to the Buddha Dharma, to what we study. The maturation process of spiritual practice is a journey from the small eye to the big eye, which is not a small task, since the grip of the small eye is extremely tight. This is what Dogen referred to when he said, to study the self is to forget the self, to go beyond the small eye. It's a great challenge because we're asked to let go of that which gives us a reference point as we move through life. The primary reason we believe something is wrong or shouldn't be happening has to do with the way we personally feel about it. The reference point is me and the way I and so if I feel good about something, it must be right. And if I don't feel good about something, it must be wrong. But what the Buddha was pointing at throughout his life is beyond my personal views or whether I agree or disagree with what happens. As we journey from the small eye and the contracted sense of self to the large and expansive eye, we need to become aware of the grasping tendencies of the small sense of self and shed light on the many ways it perpetuates itself on a daily basis. And developing this kind of awareness requires us to be bluntly candid about our habitual way of being. 
the grasping or the clinging of the small self manifests in our daily reactivities, most of us take for granted and even feel strongly justified. So for example, agitation, restlessness, frustration, resistance, disagreements, boredom, these are all indications of the inner workings of the grasping self. And if we choose to see these reactivities as opportunities, they can act as gateways to the large and expansive sense of reality. And it may sound odd, but all these reactivities are providing us with some sense of reference point by which we can identify who we are. I am the one who is upset. I am the one who agrees. I am the one who disagrees. I like, I dislike. And we have to look at that which says I like, more so than what it is that we like or dislike. So there are many common experiences in our practice. For example, often people feel flat or disinterested in their zazen or what happens in zazen. That's very common. And in fact, it's actually very important to go through such periods of feeling flat about my practice, becoming uninterested in my practice. It's a wonderful opportunity if we see it as such, because it gives us a window, a portal into the workings of me, the small I. Right? Do I have to like everything that happens? Do I have to always feel good about my practice? And what happens when I don't feel good about my practice? The practice itself is by design. It brings it up on purpose in a way. By design, it will raise all these feelings. And when we encounter that, what do we do with it? Do we allow such feelings to rob us of practice? Or do we use them in a way as Suzuki said, bury them next to the plants so they nourish, nurture the plants. So we pull out the weeds and bury them next to the plant. And it can and it will nurture our practice if we do that. So what should we do when we encounter the grasping self? How do we subdue these energies in us? In one of his talks, the Buddha spoke about the connection between restlessness or agitation and the grasping tendencies of the small eye. And he said, I will now teach you agitation through clinging and non-agitation through non-clinging. Listen and attend carefully. What is agitation through clinging? Here, the uninstructed worldling and non-practitioner who is not a seer of the truth and unskilled and undisciplined in the practice of the Dharma, regards form as self or self as possessing form. That form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form. Agitation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form, remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed, and anxious. And through clinging, he becomes agitated. It is in such a way that there is agitation through clinging. And that is clinging to, the, to a separate sense of existence, clinging to the self. And then he said, and what is non-agitation through non-clinging? Here, the instructed disciple, a practitioner, who is a seer of the truth and is skilled and disciplined in the practice of the Dharma, does not regard form as self or self as possessing form. That form of his changes and alters. Despite the change and alteration of form, 
his consciousness does not become preoccupied with the change of form. No agitation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is not obsessed, he is not frightened, distressed, or anxious. And through non-clinging, he does not become agitated. It is in such a way that there is non-agitation through non-clinging. And he's making a very clear connection between holding on to a separate sense of existence and the feeling that arises. And what he's saying is that if we see the feelings that arise, allow them to arise, and not create anything or anyone from them, they move, they change, as we do. But if we, feel, if we see those feelings and we, in a way, create something or someone from that, then that thing, that someone, becomes further solidified and those feelings become further justified not just justified, but also become magnified. So the instructions are clear. But if we want to follow them, we need to develop great determination and sustain our resolve as we encounter our reactivities to everyday life circumstances. So in other words, change the relationship with the feelings with what we feel. And we can learn from the Buddha's journey. We can learn a lot about what we need to do today from what he did back then. Learn a lot about the great doubt, the great trust, and the great determination. And the story of the Buddha is just a story unless we, unless and until we embody so it began with this statement, Shakyamuni left his palace one night. And the question is, can this be our own stepping onto a spiritual journey? When he was 19 years old, he shaved off his hair. And then he spent six years absorbed in various ascetic practices. And then he sat on the indestructible seat. So immovable that were, there were cobwebs in his eyes, a bird's nest in his hair, and reeds growing up through his sitting mat. Can that be our own realization that what we have done before didn't work, didn't free us from bondage, whatever that is, did not free us from bondage. And so we chose to not abdicate the responsibility to look within. And we chose to turn the attention inwardly, to turn to the stillness of Zazen, indestructible seat, indestructible cushion. Can that be us? And then the Buddha experienced great awakening on the morning of December 8th. And the Buddha's realization can be very encouraging for us as long as we use it to sustain our own practice rather than create an imagined destination. So instead of seeking the idea or an idea of great realization, we can, each one of us, recognize the significant revelations we experience on the cushion through our own practice and let them gradually expand and deepen. In other words, appreciate what we experience, learn from our own experiences. And then, after his great realization, the Buddha spent 49 years helping others by teaching, never staying in seclusion. With just one robe and one bowl, he lacked nothing. And right now, being, quote-unquote, stuck at home, what do we lack? What's missing for us? There's a long list, of course. But is it really missing? Is anything ever missing? With just one robe and one bowl, he lacked nothing. There's a teaching. 
do we heed that? And then he taught at over 360 assemblies and finally entrusted the treasury of the Eye of the Truth to Mahakashyapa. And its transmission has continued to the present day. And this is the ways we use our revelations to be of service to other people. All of it is about us. Any Dharma teaching, any Dharma teaching, is only about us. And this can be a, our own actualization of the fundamental point. And the behavior of Shakyamuni Buddha is a model for his disciples, which is us. Even though he may have had the 32 marks of greatness and the 80 kinds of refinements, he kept the form of an old mendicant no different from anyone else. Simple, unassuming, humble, authentic. And that's how we should embody the practice. And that's how we pass it on to future generations. So to celebrate the Buddha's life in a meaningful way that really makes a difference. We need to turn the attention to our own life and our own practice and kill the Buddha. So I'd like to point at Yunmen's commentary on the birth of the Buddha. He said, if I were a witness of this scene, the scene of the Buddha standing up walking seven steps, he said, I would have knocked him to death with a, with a single stroke and giving his flesh to dogs for food. This would have been some contribution to the peace and harmony of the world. Very clear, isn't it? Any idea we have in our heads, any idea of the Buddha must be killed, must be thrown away. As long as it's not thrown away, we are practicing by following something or someone. We're not following what he was following. And to follow the Buddha is to follow our inner compass, our inner Buddhahood. And it's not a small task because we are so used to abnegating the responsibility. So we have to turn it around. And Yunman is raising the spirit needed to break through, the spirit we need to break through. And he's saying in simple terms, if not me, who? If not now, when? Pema Chodron said, to have no reference point is to experience realization. To have no reference point. And that means to be willing to admit that our reactivities create a sense of parameters for us, which we then use as a reference point for the boundaries of the small self. We define ourselves by our reactivities, by what we like and what we don't like. And so to have no reference points is to be okay with having nothing upon which to rely. So, is that how you practice? How does the irritability, agitation, restlessness, frustration, resistance, disagreements, and boredom show up in your practice? What do you do with them when they show up? How do you meet them? How can you use them as opportunities to journey from the contracted sense of self to the large and expansive sense of reality. And what is the relevance of the Buddha's life for each of us today as we face and deal with this pandemic? So to go back to what I said before, what the inner chants in morning service, may we express our gratitude by accomplishing the way together. Are we doing that? So these are the questions I want us to explore together. You want to speak? 
unmute, go right to it. John, go ahead. Did you unmute? Okay, should I choose the first one to speak? <laughs> I spoke enough. Uh, he's gonna pick. <laughs> I will. Okay, Golden, you're on. Something in the Taisho that I really uh, stood out to me was the, um, you know, just discussing the form of self and um, making that a really fixed notion. It, it just, it, what immediately jumped to mind was how a friend recently told me that they were, uh, they missed the old Gordon and they didn't like the new Gordon. And um, I just remember thinking, and I might have said it out loud, I was like, who are these people? Um, but, you know, one thing I've, I've seen, you know, going through the, you know, the current pandemic is how fixed and rigid we really wanted things um, previously and um, how comfortable life really was because we've lived in a really good time um, for a lot of humanity. And, um, yeah, now it's time to get comfortable with the uncomfortable to realize that the self isn't fixed and to, uh, you know, not, you know, look for so many, um, you know, not to put anything into boxes continuously. We need to really sort of open that up and, and, um, certainly with our, with our practice, you know, I sometimes walk away going like, Oh, today was a, today was a, a not so great meditation or anything, but it's always amusing because then around the corner becomes, some other improvement so you know it's it's really hard it's really difficult but it's yeah it's to not judge not judge just just you know put yourself into it again and again and again so yeah so yeah no fixed notions <clears throat> yeah so to not judge they don't like golden 2.0 <laughs> yeah <laughs> who is this old gordon that you got <laughs> i'd like to meet these people yeah, yeah. Uh, do not judge by any standards as we chant, right? Do not judge. Yes, so what does it mean? Uh, I, I think often the notion of uh, no self is, uh, is often misunderstood, actually, right? What does it really mean? Does it mean anything? Moment by moment, what does it really mean? Do we, do we deny anything? Do we go against anything? Well, that's the sort of wonderful inclusivity of the practice and the ceremony and the chanting is just to really to understand that, you know, it's, it is not a one, it's not one fixed thing. It's all encompassing. And we, so we just really have to embrace it, you know, even, even when your voice cracks during chanting, even, even when your, uh, you know, when your leg goes to sleep and everything, that's, that's a part of it. Nothing's good or bad about it. And so, yeah, you know, the one thing about it that uh, I find amazing is that it actually, it changes the ex our experiences in the other direction. So it's not a denial. It's actually, it is, as you said, all inclusiveness, right? It's, it's embracing everything without making an issue out of anything. If anything, life becomes a lot more colorful rather than black and white as it may seem uh, from the outside of practice, and, and often it can seem this way with, from within the practice, if we don't practice with the finger on the pulse, if we don't practice correctly. So, Buddhism doesn't deny anything, doesn't go against anything. It only allows for everything without grasping, without holding on, without fixating, and without creating anything. I think it's too much freedom at times. We don't know what to do with it. 
right? Because we cannot, we truly cannot find ourselves there. Too much space. Thank you, Gom. You passed. <laughs> uh, who's next? Yes, Joan. My name is Joan, and um, thank you so much for inviting me to this Sangha. It was one, a wonderful morning. And what I'd like to share is that I noticed after the fact, unfortunately, um, during this uh, COVID-19 crisis, that I engaged in a lot of grasping behavior, and it had negative results. And um, the lesson for me is that I have to come back to the practice and sit with all kinds of awful thoughts and feelings. And I wish I had not had that realization after the fact, but what's done is done. And um, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. So how do you meet them before you go away? How do you meet all that? Oh, by sitting there, just sitting there. And the mind gets still and then there it comes. There everything arises and I have to sit with it. Okay. After the chatter, you know, yeah. dissipates after, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, whatever. After counting the breath over and over, I usually don't get past three. But <laughs> eventually, I'm left with this personal um, grief that I have to sit with rather than try to grasp at a different solution. Yeah, and what happens when you just allow it to be there? When you don't argue with it, when you don't create anything... And you don't go to the feelings of lament, maybe, I should have done something else and I didn't. What happens when you truly allow it to be? And, and Nothing, it just is there. I just learned to hold it. Nothing, it, it's good. Yeah. But I, I forget that it's okay, so I try to push it away and grasp other things, and I forget that it's just okay to be with what arises. And that's very hard for me to remember. Yeah. So I'm so pleased that this, was a good reminder. I have to do that a lot more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. It's okay even when it's not okay. That's correct. I have to. I have to learn to live with it not being okay. Right, and often to be at peace with not being at peace is to That's be at right. peace. Right, because then all that grasping behavior only has negative results for me anyway. Yeah, and for the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Thank, Thank you, you again. Thank you. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Uh, can everybody hear me? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, what struck me during the Taisho actually was um, what you said about Shakyamuni leaving his palace. I know, look at the screen. I know, I'm so used to looking at people right next to me. Um, Shakyamuni leaving his palace, and can that be our step on the journey on the awakening journey and i was thinking how much especially with what gordon said about leaving what's comfortable in our routine and how we were living just being able to let go of our comfort and who we're comfortable with and what we're comfortable with and and this has to be there and this has to be there you know and what we have to be comfortable with is all lost when we leave and so when we left that time period before COVID, um, just feeling um, actually that much more gratitude for the unknown, for the not knowing, because what I thought I knew is not something that really existed for me. I had all kinds of set ways and routines and things that I did and I took them all for granted and just diving into the unknown is scary it's terrifying and you don't know what's going to happen and you know a lot of tragedy happens a lot of sadness a lot of different emotions happen but um, I find that with that comes this intense feeling of gratitude for everything around me Actually, I can look outside right here and I can see all kinds of trees and flowers and and I can hear birds more and I, you know, just just the things that I took for granted because of my routine and what I was stuck with, what I was stuck in. Yeah, yeah it's actually a great opportunity 
for us to, to uh, because there's not much going on. There's a lot going on in the head, but there's not much going on as far as activities or responsibilities these days for, for most of us. And it's a great opportunity to uh, expand and, and pay attention to what's always going on. And, and truly appreciate. And I, I spoke to a, one of you this week, a one-on-one conversation. We talked about how boredom is basically turning away from appreciation. When we appreciate, there is no room for boredom. When we truly appreciate, how can we, how can we be bored? How is it possible to be bored if we appreciate? Right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's so important to turn towards appreciation and then see what it does. It flushes everything away. Life becomes alive for us as an experience. So thank you. Thank you. Who's next? Yeah. Me? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to say the name? Uh, again, we forget. Uh, Mio, yeah. Um, I'm Mioho. Hello, everyone. Morning. Um, I just feel like what everyone said obviously apply. And, and um, the fact of, I, I feel like this moment, I guess, without taking the importance of every person's like feeling and and fears and what's going on and suffering itself um i am very grateful for this i do for some reason underneath even though i even have days or feeling like um scare or or scare of the unknown or what's going to happen um there's always a, a underneath that it's always this gratefulness that I feel towards what's happening. I feel if, if this wouldn't happen the way it happened, um, I personally wouldn't even able to, to get to, to come back home, you know, to, to be able to sit with myself and sit with Mioho when it's sad and sit with Mioho when it's scared and sit mm-hmm. with Mioho when it's happy and, and do, you know, leave my roller coaster of emotions during the day without escaping from it. Because where else am I going to go? And even if you can turn on the TV, still there's no escape. Mm -hmm. Because it's not enough. You know, at one point I have to face it. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm very grateful for that because because that's including everyone and forgetting the self and, and, you know, to embrace the self. It's like, you know, forgetting forgetting that one miojo and embrace all the miojos during the day. So then it's, it's no one and, and, and it's one at the same time, you know? So then, then I can be okay when uh, my sitting is not good or I can be okay. I was doing yoga yesterday, the day before I was not feeling well and I wanted not to do yoga, but I said, I'm going to do my class. And that comes with my minutes of sitting and everything else. And at the end of the class, I felt the same way when I started it, <laughs> it didn't get any better. And I was like, hey, this is also okay. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, why expecting because I sit and I should feel better afterwards. Yeah. Um, so, but then, but then it was the same feeling, but there was an understanding behind it that, hey, it doesn't have to change and it's okay. Um, like John was saying, it's okay to not be okay, right? But I feel like this COVID-19 crisis is, it, it Again, I had vacations and I had time off and you'd be like, oh, I'm so happy. I have so many things to do. And again, we get into doing things even when we have time off. Now, this is a real time off where you stay home. You don't engage with other people personally. You don't go out. And, and I feel like I'm very grateful. I just have to say that I am very grateful for with nature because this is a universe happening. Um, for nature to to give us the opportunity to sit and, and reflect, even if we don't want to, you know, <laughs> even if we're not in Buddhist practice, people are reflecting at some level in their lives, but we all are reflecting. Yeah. And and that's that's something that going back to what you talk about in Teisho is that's what makes us all one, you know, when we have to actually be in force right now 
by nature to reflect. Yeah. And that's huge, you know, because you can feel the power of it because you can actually sense that a lot of people are doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was it. Thank you. you know, and I want to, one thing about that, you know, some people say, well, you know, you got to make the, the most of it and, you know, use that time. But what we're talking about is a lot larger than uh, making lemonades out of lemons. This is not what Buddhism is talking about. It's not about, well, make the best you can make with this because those are circumstances. No, not at all. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. What we're talking about is include all circumstances. So sit down and take a look, and you see everybody can see that we're not we're not talking about being positive. I mean, of course, it's included. And of course, it's a wonderful thing to be positive. But then, if of course, the, the other issue with that is when we run towards what's positive, we are rejecting what's negative. And and then what? And then we're running, and then we are escaping something. So it's not about finding the positive or finding the silver lining in what's happening. It's much larger than that. Thank you. I'd like to speak. Yeah, please do. Um, one thing that I've, I'm thinking about now is from the um, Taisho, I think about two weeks ago, something that really struck me was uh, we were talking about having to let go of this small eye self uh, on a path or uh, in an attempt towards enlightenment. And as I was listening, there was a phrase that was like, you have to also let go of the self that feels like I'm doing quite well in this situation, actually. Um, I find in my practice that in stories that say uh we have to release judgment so when you feel that your practice is leveling out or flat it is not a bad thing sometimes there is the impulse to say it's actually a good thing and we repeat the judgment the structure of the judgment but in the opposite direction and we feel that that is progress what i find um for me, when I have feelings of boredom come up in my practice, um, and I have it come up when I'm sitting by myself, and I also have it come up a lot in my practice of interacting with just other people, when I feel bored in conversation, it's often because um, I have a feeling of this conversation is below me, this person is not interesting, mm -hmm. I could be doing something else right now. And that feeling of departing from the conversation comes from places, usually something has happened in that conversation that feels very deeply hurtful and that challenges me and brings up very hurtful um, feelings. Mm -hmm. And um, rather, it, there, it's, um, um, I think sitting enables me to realize that, but it is still, it is not, okay, I recognize that, I recognize boredom and it's good. It's a good thing. It's actually, this is something that is very hurtful and difficult um, and it takes a long, it is, it's neither good or bad, but it is difficult. Mm -hmm. I think when um, thinking about the COVID situation, for me, I struggled a lot with the early levels of isolation with feeling like I'm actually someone who's quite uh, who's relatively secure in this situation. I'm able to still have access to uh, income and um, I don't have to put myself in high risk situations and uh, I can comfortably sit at home with enough food and I don't have to worry about other people. Um, and I rejected feeling that good feeling or that secure feeling because it didn't feel congruent with what many people were going through. Um, and so, and, and then I would also over identify with that feeling of safety of being like, I'm just not going to pay attention to anything else that's going on because I'm, I'm doing quite well. And that's why that taste show at that time really stuck with me. There's a way that I want to, that, um, this, uh, community has been helping me to understand how I hold this pandemic and both holding the reality of my experience as a single entity and a specific geopolitical position inside of it, 
but also not rejecting. There is no singular experience of the COVID pandemic. Many people are having a many varied experience of differing levels of anxiety, fear, and danger, and not rejecting those different experiences, but also not over-identifying with them. Um, because I fear somehow, because I fear something that I don't have words for yet. Um, thank you for letting me speak. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's, yes, it's a very important point that you know we 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 keep raising, right? To, and and the point is that those feelings, whether they are good or bad, they give us a point of reference. They give us a sense of boundary of the self. And what we we are talking about is seeing it, not rejecting it, seeing it, and allowing it to be there as long as it needs to be there, right? Not pushing, not pulling, not arguing with what we feel, whether it's good or bad. And if we can expand from that and not argue, not resist, even the resistance, by the way, then it moves, right? To not resist the resistance, to not rail against feeling a certain way, not love it, not hate it, just let it be. And we don't have to think about expansiveness. We do expand when we do this. It's not something special that we need to do. All we have to do is just acknowledge and allow rather than grab on grab onto it and attach ourselves to that so thank you for your comment okay i want to hear from raisan for some reason i don't know why huh. <laughs> uh, i don't know either uh, let's see where it goes our Zendo looks out on a beautiful blue sky and some wonderful trees and birds building their nests. And um, just this morning, it's been this image of life goes on. Um, and um, even if human beings were to disappear. Um, so I've been sort of living in that um, in that space um, of um, not being under any particular um, requirement or demand made of me at the moment. Uh, we rewrote our wills and we rewrote our health initiatives and we've done all of these preparations in case something happens to one of us. Um, I think in relation to the discussion, expectation seems to be one of the words that, that keeps coming up for me, that it's, it's a time in which the expectations are just kind of squeezed out of us, whatever we were planning. We're supposed to be in Scotland next month, um, whatever um, we think we might be able to do in the coming um, months and then weeks and then days, um, it just seems to be reduced to now. Mm. Um, what you can decide to do is now, um, and um, what you can decide to do is uh, limited to the elements of now, um, not the elements of some other situation as much as we might wish that were true. Um, so it's, um, a very um, ongoing experience of each moment by moment, um, such as the beautiful sun shining outside and the birds building a nest outside. And, um, mm. Those are the conditions of this moment and that's where we are. Yeah, with one robe and one ball, he lacked nothing, right? So yeah, what are we lacking? Right, and, and if we do, you know, if we do understand, if we do have an experience of Indra's net, we're always in Scotland, right? Scotland is not missing. So nothing is missing. Right. If we, we have some level of, or some experience of Indra's net. Thank you. That was a beautiful yeah. interest, not by the way, that he said. 
Yeah, you tell me that. Jeremy, morning. Good morning. Um, I'm struck by this uh, sense of uh, self through all of this, and even uh, that idea of um, letting go of that perspective. Uh, you know, you were we were talking a second ago of everyone having different experiences with this, whether it be you're super more busy now than you've ever been. In my case, I feel like I'm busier now. And some people have a lot of extra time. Um, but somehow there's been this amazing ability to see different perspectives through this. And even this Zoom meeting, having this moment with you guys, I don't just see um, uh, Roshi. I see all of you at the same time. I see your eyes looking at me. And um, it's a nice metaphor, in my um, opinion, of just that ability to have those multiple perspectives at once. So. Mm -hmm. That's one thing I'm taking from it. Yeah. Thank you, Jeremy. Yeah, the, the sense of community, and it, it, is, it is incredible. I have to say, it's incredible uh, that we're able to maintain and sustain that, although we are so much apart these days physically. And uh, there is, I feel, and I think many of you feel the same, that uh, the, the Sangha is actually strengthening, oddly enough. We are actually getting closer to each other and obviously we are able to, I mean, more people can join these days because space time irrelevant, yeah. uh, which is a wonderful opportunity. But I think that uh, as a whole, the Sangha is strengthening and, and the Sangha is, is, a, uh, is a jewel. It's an incredible uh, way to understand, to, to turn towards the Sangha is to turn, to, to turn away from the small self towards, towards the larger sense of reality. That's what that means. And I think often this is why we have some people have trepidations about be becoming a, a part of a Sangha and sustaining that. And, uh, and I have to say that to me as a teacher, this is one of the ways I see a spiritual maturation. To see how much uh, a practitioner turns towards the Sangha um, it doesn't mean we're always comfortable with that. It doesn't mean it's always great. It is the way it is. And uh, the analogy of, you know, putting, you know, stones in a tumbler and then spinning them and then they, of course, you know, bump against one another and it can be painful. And it can be difficult because we are human beings and we bump against each other and we aggravate each other in many ways, which is fine. But to, to understand that this is a part of our practice and then to keep going back and to keep turning towards the, the strength of the Sangha. That is a part of our spiritual maturation process. That's why it's considered a treasure. So thank you all for, uh, for doing that, for, for participating, for helping us all maintain that strength. Who's next? Okay, Daibo. Good morning. I think you're muted. We can't hear you. Do you have your speaker on? Your sound on? Oh, it hasn't. We still can't hear you. Okay, so you have to figure out what's going on, and uh, Daikyo, you're on. Great. All right. Um, I was um, reminded by the conversations that uh, you guys were having. Because since you were saying um, about interesting conversation I have with Roshi about um, the waiting, I think you know one of the things that happens in in these situations that are uncertain, and it's uh, it's fading away as the time passes by because we cannot more um, force to you know week in week off. We already have been in this like four weeks, and so so it's like fading away. But you know there's a sensation of waiting waiting for this to go. And, um, and I was uh, thinking that waiting, um, 
you know, we were discussing this with Roshi, and, and we think it's the opposite of appreciation. It's like every time you don't appreciate what's going on, you start waiting for something. Um, and I wanted to keep to that because I, we heard that a little bit before. I mean, Roshi mentioned today, but uh, but I think it's important that appreciation is the key here. You know, appreciation of everything. And, and a lot of people, a lot of you were talking about that, talking about how you've been able to appreciate what's going on now, regardless of how it feels to you. And, and, and that is kind of um, the big learning point, in my opinion. It's, it's, uh, it's the let go of the waiting. Let's go of, of this is a storm that needs to pass, and we are um, kind of waiting for some new time, kind of living in some sort of future, and comparing that sort of future with the past and forgetting about the now. So. I'm happy to hear that most of you are, are, are you know, the people we're talking, we're kind of saying these in different fashion, and, and I'm happy to hear that because I mean that's that's uh, that's key. The appreciation of what's going on, whatever it is, uh, it's key. Um, I also wanted to, you know, mention something that it's a feeling that I had this time with this um, crisis and and. and you know, the changes that the crisis brought on, up onto everybody is that um, some sort of competition feeling dropped in, in like in my own perception of things. And, and then I was curious about it because it was like, what competition are we talking about? And I noticed that um, we have this permanent sensation of doing something, this permanent sensation of, of accomplishing or of, of making something out of time and that is is usually kind of it's it's some sort of competition even if we don't realize that we're competing we're competing with each other because we're supposed to be productive for some reason um and, and that's some some sort of background you know sensation i was having for a long time that i didn't notice that it was so clear and I, i'm not feeling like i'm competing with any anybody in particular but it's like it kind of a if you're not doing anything, if you're not accomplishing, I think the key word is that you know, it's not the doing, it's the accomplishing, then you're wasting your time. Then uh, if somebody else or something else is catching up on you. And, uh, and that sensation um, dropped for me hmm. through this process. And, and it was interesting because it, it brought a, kind of a super big amount of freedom. Interestingly enough, I've been, you know, Pretty much doing the same thing, but with a completely different mindset. Um, I, you know, I've been busy enough. Um, and one of the person that I've been through all this, uh, I still need to take care of businesses and things, and also dealing with the uncertainty of the, how the business is run. And, you know, uh, we own our own business with the family, and you know how that is run and all that is it's complication that's additional. However, it didn't feel like we're competing anymore. I mean, I don't feel like I'm competing. Um, so, so it was an interesting um, change in my mindset that uh, allowed me to feel more free in the doing and, uh, and kind of have more appreciation for it. So those are the two things I wanted to mention. Thank you, thank you. And uh, the interesting thing about appreciation in terms of practice, uh, many words change when we bring them into the Buddha Dharma, when we look at them from the, the point of practice. So when we look at appreciation, it's kind of the same as, as we look at trust. The great trust is not about trusting something or nothing. It's just about practicing trust, period. And often when we talk about trust, the question is, what should I trust? And that's already leaving the seat of the Buddha. That's already going somewhere else. Because that's already bringing things that may or may not be or we may or may not be able to trust. And the same with appreciation. It's not about what am I appreciating right now? No, that's secondary. Trust, period. Can we do that? Can we just trust? Can we just appreciate? Can we practice appreciation regardless of what comes and goes? Because if, if we go to what comes and goes, we are already creating someone someone who may or may not like, may or may not choose to appreciate. 
even the one who chooses to appreciate. So to bring it in and to keep it at the level of appreciation, that's plenty. And actually that's plenty for us to practice for the rest of our lives. So try to look at it this way. Okay, should we uh, go to Daibo again? You want to try again, Daibo? There may be something wrong with your uh, headset. Now, you are muted, but we cannot hear you. Okay, you can write to us. <laughs> okay, so who's next? We have, some, uh, we have a few more minutes, actually. Raj. Roshi. Um, yeah, I, I thought the, the Taisho was very uh, uh, was very good. Uh, I had heard of that the, the comment from Yunmin before about killing the Buddha and all that. That's, I mean, I, I suppose it's interesting because I I, I do kind of like uh, the idea of. Um, you know, having some reverence for the story, the myth, the, the, the sort of uh, the archetype of the Buddha. But at the same time, I recognize that you have to transcend that as well. And it's kind of an interesting dichotomy. I'm not, I, I'm not quite comfortable with, with how to deal with both those two aspects of it. It, it, it kind of reminds me of another koan where uh, which I'm sure you know <laughs> about where uh, somebody asks them that you shouldn't seek from Buddha, you shouldn't seek from Dharma, and you shouldn't seek from Sangha. Why are you bowing before before the uh, image? Mm -hmm. And and he says, I always I don't seek from Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha, but I always do my bows this way. So it kind of reminded me of that koan. Um, which is, you know, on the one hand, you do have to uh, kill the Buddha and kill the uh, the patriarchs, but at the same time, um, it, it, there's a transcendence, but there's also a reverence, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm, I'm, I kind of struggle with that aspect of it. You know, Yasutani Roshi used, used to say, Roshi used to say, "I only bow to myself, right?" And I only bow to myself. Of course, sounds arrogant, right? But that's yeah. not, and this is without understanding of Indra's net. Of course, right. I only bow to myself. There's nobody there. Right. There's no one else there. If there's no gap, there's no bowing. Right. There's only appreciation. Right. There's not what am I or who am I appreciating. And what needs to be dropped for us as practitioners is the Buddha, actually. Because what, what good is it? What good is the Buddha story? If we don't experience it and embody it in our lives, what good is it? It's a story. Maybe we like it, maybe we don't like it. What's the difference? Right? So we, what needs to drop is the gap between he did it, right? And then I am doing it or not doing it. Right. I guess it's the, it's the, the question about self-power versus other power to some extent. Right. I mean, that is worldly power versus spiritual power. Up. I'm sorry. Worldly power versus spiritual power. In right. terms of practice, in terms of Dharma, we, we call this worldly power, which is dependent on other people agreeing or disagreeing, approving or disapproving, and spiritual power, which is not dependent on anything. Right. That's, that's what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 Right. That's the. And this is what we mean by the journey from the small sense of self to the large sense of reality. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Encho. Good morning. Hang on. Uh, you're still muted. Oh, can you hear me oh, okay yeah, now? Yes. Good morning okay, from good. Seattle. It's good nice morning. to see you. It's early on your side of the country. It has been, yeah, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still very happy to be able to join you. And in fact, that's definitely one of the um, 
things that I'm grateful for is for, for all of this is the fact that I can um, actually be with everybody since I'm unable to physically be with you regard um, to be able to be with you virtually is, is something I'm incredibly grateful for. Um, I have been thinking about kind of what my struggles right now, what struck me about the Tay show this morning and the attachment to self that I've been trying to work through, let go of, uh, sit with, be with, uh, everything the past couple days is the, um, and what struck me is the frustration and irritation, um, of this, of the self, you know, of, of, uh, I am frustrated or I am irritated. Um, and, and realizing that, uh, it's something that I'm, I'm working through. I, something I, I, I have the opportunity to, um, to look at and let go of. And in, and in that way, um, let go of that attachment to self. So that's what I've been. <laughs> yeah. working through and, and still working yeah. through the last couple days and that's what we're asking right this is what uh, the, this is what we are asking of ourselves to do in terms of practice right to to open it up not to push away anything but to open up and to to be open to the possibility that frustration is just frustration right it doesn't have to mean a whole lot disagreement is, it doesn't have to mean anything right we don't have to create anything from it or off it we can, ex and also there is a possibility to experience it without creating anything and with allowing it to dissolve. And it does dissolve. It does change like anything else. And if we allow it to dissolve, there's nothing left. Which and, makes it a lot easier to travel, right? You travel light, carry right. nothing. So that's what I've got. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we are going to uh, wrap it up. And uh, before we do, I just want to finish with a quote that some of you have heard before. This is uh, from Master Dongshan. Master Dongshan once asked a monk, what is the most tormenting thing in the world? And the monk said, hell is the most tormenting thing. And Dongshan said, no. When that which is draped in this robe is not aware of the great matter, that I call the most tormenting thing in the world. And it really means, you know, when that which is sitting on this chair, on this cushion, is not aware of the large and expansive sense of self or sense of reality, that is the most tormenting thing in the world. And this is our challenge, to break free of that, to realize so, thank you. <laughs>